I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll tell you how to prepare your pike for track laying. said in the last episode, the pace of the podcast is somewhat matching the pace of construction on my own model railroad. Given that I just laid the last stretch of track a few weeks ago, I decided that I ought to make the track laying episode my top priority, so that the tips and techniques would be at the forefront of my mind. So, here I am. I had originally intended to separate out track laying and wiring into two different episodes, one covering each topic. However, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the two topics were intertwined with each other. You literally cannot lay track without considering how you will wire it. Thus, one episode. However, the script for Trackling is, as I write this, 22 pages long, which is way too much to cover at once. Thus, two episodes, again. In the first episode, I will cover all the background information and all the ways in which you will need to prepare your layout for laying and wiring track. In the next episode, I will take you into the nitty-gritty of track laying. And in between the two, there's actually something quite fun that could be coming down the pipeline. Keep an eye out. Well, let's get into it. To begin with, I would say that laying track is the single most important part of building a model railroad, bar none. Why? Because as I have alluded to on numerous occasions before, laying track pertains directly to running trains. Everything before this, benchwork and layout design, is purely pedantic and at worst can be ham-fistedly slapped together and still be somewhat functional. Everything after this, scenery and structures, is background noise, easily improved or replaced. However, mess up your track laying, and the central premise of the entire hobby, running trains, is jeopardized. Please trust me on this, because having built over a dozen layouts before, I would say less than one of which was properly functional, I speak from experience. The most important thing you could do in model railroading, the single most important thing, is to lay your track well. If you have a bad track plan, you merely get bored. If you have bad scenery or structures, you can tear it up or swap it out at any time, but at least your trains still run. However, if your track is poorly laid, then your trains derail during normal operation. This causes untold frustrations and invalidates the entire point of the hobby, making you indistinguishable from a military or fine-scale modeler or a wargaming enthusiast. 
The purpose of this hobby is the movement of trains as a proxy for the physical manifestations of an entire world sewing itself together. Ergo, derailment-free operation should be your top priority. So, now that I have sufficiently scared you off, how can you achieve this coveted nirvana? The number one piece of advice I could give you is this. Diligence. In the modern era, with commercially available flex track and practically infallible turnouts, it is rather difficult to uckfup a single piece of track. Rather, being a diligent track layer is to lay the track to carefully avoid kinks, bumps, overtight curves, too complicated or too squeezed track arrangements, and to have the self-discipline necessary to recognize when you're forcing a section or arrangement of track too hard and to rip it up and start over or modify your plans. This will be the biggest recurring theme throughout this episode. Since this is a novice-oriented show, I will first begin in this episode by describing relevant information of the different track components themselves. To start with, the biggest choice a beginner must face in laying track is to choose between click track, sectional track, or flex track. As I have discussed in previous episodes, click track is a sectional style track with a plastic ballast form into which the track is embedded. Click track can be useful for temporary floor or dining room table layouts, but it is clunky, limited in versatility, and looks unrealistic. While some people do keep a stock of click track to have the option for a temporary layout around the Hanukkah bush or on cheap layouts for kids, click track is almost never used on permanent model railroads. The only exception is O scale, where the wide variety of products actually makes it very easy to use click track layouts and where the modelers usually aren't too concerned with realism. Sectional track is exactly that. Sectional. Imagine click track, but without the ballast. This offers an advantage over click track as it allows you to mix and match track pieces from various manufacturers to suit your needs, whereas before the plastic ballast posed compatibility issues across systems. One disadvantage, though, is that, unlike click track, sectional track does not stay affixed together on its own and must be glued or nailed down if trains are to run over it. The joint security in the absence of a permanent fixative is why click track still exists. While most experienced modelers do not use sectional track, I personally see little wrong with using it for a beginner layout, as it gets most of the major points down with little effort. Just keep in mind that it is totally okay to occasionally mix flex track and sectional track, or to cut a piece of sectional track to size in order to get the track arrangement that you want. By far the most popular choice in model railroading, FlexTrack is a marvelous tool for making layouts, because, as the name implies, it is flexible. FlexTrack comes in a variety of incarnations from different manufacturers, but all of them are bendable meter lengths of track. Just figure out how you want your track to go, then bend the FlexTrack into that shape, cut it to size, and glue it down. That's all it takes. It therefore allows you to make whatever kind of track arrangement you can think of, as opposed to sectional track, which is confined to whichever lengths or radius curves a manufacturer offers. A lot of beginner layouts use a mix of sectional and flex track, with a heavy emphasis on the former. This allows you to very easily make, say, a 22-inch radius curve with sectional track, while also putting flex track to work on those odd track arrangements that you couldn't fit sectional track into. Flex track also makes long straightaways and long sidings very easy, because it is also long. Turnouts, however, are a somewhat dicey subject, as they will always add difficulty to track laying. That's why, as I have said, the prototype has as few turnouts as possible, and why you should too. 
It's perfectly fine to have as many industries as you want to increase operational potential, but you'll be saving yourself money and effort if you minimize the complexity of track arrangements and serve multiple industries off of the same spur. It's a fine and practiced balance that you must put effort into striking. While there are many different types of turnouts, and turnout science will always be circumstantial to your track plan, the one unifying distinction among turnouts is their categorization into DCC-friendly versus power-routing turnouts. Contrary to their name, they both actually work with DCC, but the distinction of DCC compatibility is related to how the power is routed through the turnout. As you know, power must be delivered in a circuit, with, technically, one wire to take the current into an electrical device and one to take the current out. The same is the case for model trains. Well, excepting O-scale, as always, which has three rails. The middle rail is one polarity, and the outer two are another, thus allowing you to loop the tracks willy-nilly without worrying about shorts because the power distribution is always symmetrical across the track centerline. While three-rail track is unsightly to some, the simplified wiring system is one of the main reasons why younger or less electrically inclined enthusiasts are drawn to O-scale. While it normally doesn't matter which rail is positive or negative in normal model railroading contexts, especially because DCC actually works on AC current, the key point is that crossing one rail to another causes an electrical short, taking current away from your trains and frying your power source. In fact, to this end, most layout control systems have built-in short-circuit protection, because the unregulated power sources of the olden days of home-built power packs could literally weld locomotives to the track just through sparking. In modern contexts, however, electrical shorts happen when a piece of metal touches both rails, when tracks change direction, like in a return loop or a Y, or, finally getting to the topic at hand, in a turnout, when one rail has to cross the other at a point called the frog. Let's start with the original type of turnout, sometimes called DCC unfriendly, sometimes electrofrog, but officially known as power routing turnouts. As the name implies, these turnouts route the power from one line to another. If you have one track that diverges into two, let's call them tracks 1A and B respectively, where 1 is the main track before the turnout, A is the main track after the turnout, and B is the siding. You might want to draw this out if you have trouble visualizing. On track 1, one rail has a polarity of plus and the other is minus. The outside, or stock rails of the turnout, the ones that split and become the outside rails of the two new tracks, will always have the same polarities because the rail is uninterrupted as it goes through the turnout. Where the routing happens is at the switch rails, which are the inside rails that slide back and forth to change the direction of travel of the turnout. In power routing turnouts, the switch rails are electrically contiguous with each other and carry the power polarity based on which one is contacting the respective stock rail. If the switch rails are centered, then they aren't contacting either stock rail and are electrically dead. But when the switch is thrown one way such that it is contacting one stock rail, both switch rails will share that stock rail's polarity. Throw the switch, and by contacting the opposite rail, both switch rails will have the opposite polarity. The notable aspect of power routing turnouts is that the switch rails actually carry this power routing through the frog to the inside rails beyond the turnout. So, if the turnout is lined for the main, i.e. track 1 to track A, with the stock rail of the positive polarity, the switch rails, contacting the stock rail of the opposite side, will carry the negative polarity through the frog and into the new rails created after the frog. The catch is that it will also carry the same polarity, in this case negative, to the new rails of track B as well, 
The main line will be properly powered, with one rail of the positive polarity and the other of negative. But track B, for which the turnout is not lined, will have both rails of the negative polarity, and thus will be electrically dead. You can actually test this out for yourself. If you power only the rails leading to a power routing turnout, and place a sound-equipped locomotive on the diverging track, you will only hear sound from the locomotive when the turnout is lined for that locomotive. Throw the switch, and the sound dies. Do you understand all this? No? Tough luck, this is a podcast, there's nothing I can do about it. This quirk of power routing turnouts can actually be very useful if you need to cut the power temporarily to a locomotive, such as if you use DC block wiring, or don't want to worry about storing noisy sound-equipped locomotives in an engine house or hostling area. The problem with this, however, arises if you need to provide feeder wires to tracks A or B to guarantee them power, even when the turnout isn't lined for them. This would create an electrical short on the inner rails, because every time the switch would be aligned away from a track, the switch rails would feed the inside rail of that track the incorrect polarity. Thus, zappy zap. For all this talk of power routing, it is actually a very simple problem to solve. All you need to do is put an insulated rail joiner on the inner diverging rails when connecting the turnout to the rest of the railroad. An insulated rail joiner is just a plastic rail joiner that still aligns two rails, but does not allow current to cross between them. That's it! That's all it takes! With this setup, the switch rails, frog, and new rails will always have the proper polarity for whichever way the turnout is routed. But, after the insulated rail joiners, tracks A and B will also always have their polarity too. Insulated frog, or DCC-friendly turnouts, on the other hand, arose with DCC, when you could run multiple trains at the same time without the need to electrically isolate one track in order to run a train on another. Unlike power routing turnouts, the switch rails, frog, and diverging inner rails are all electrically isolated from one another, and instead are secretly wired to all the stock rails in the turnout to always have the correct polarity, except for the frog, which remains electrically dead. This makes installation very easy, because all the turnout's rails can be attached to the rest of the track with normal rail joiners, no special insulation or power routing concerns required. Admittedly though, the dead frog can occasionally pose some problems. With regular locomotives that have multiple electrical pickups and long wheelbases, one set of wheels can power the locomotive, while the other set of wheels goes over the dead frog, keeping an uninterrupted power supply to the motor. However, if you have a locomotive of a short wheelbase, like a small 060 switcher, or a locomotive that has only a few electrical pickups, like some cheap train set locomotives, the dead frog will break the electrical circuit as it is passed over, and the locomotive stalls. There are some ways to avoid this by conducting electrical acrobatics, such as by wiring the frog to a specialized frog juicer or a switch machine integrated double pull double throw electrical switch, either of which will give it the correct polarity for whichever direction the switch is thrown, but for most locomotives, and especially for beginner contexts, this really doesn't matter a whole lot and you can just leave the frog dead. Now, though these may seem like mere quirks, there is some comparing and contrasting which can be done between the two types of turnouts. Because of their simpler electrical setup, power routing turnouts are usually marginally cheaper, but because of their nature, they also usually take a bit more effort to install successfully. Due to the fact that they route power, you can sometimes do some nifty things with power routing turnouts, like putting a train on a siding and turning the train off by routing power away from it, or like prohibiting trains from errantly entering a turnout from a closed direction by forcing an electrical short before a derailment. 
However, with DCC and other fancy electronic abracadabra devices, such is seldomly necessary these days. Additionally, the power routing aspect is actually a liability. If the switch points get gummed up with glue, dirt, or oxidation, the current will actually be unable to pass from the stock rails to the switch rails, and the turnout will need to be cleaned, or in some extreme cases, replaced. By contrast, DCC-friendly turnouts are usually much easier to install and more electrically reliable, especially in sequence, such as where you have one turnout immediately connected to another. The only downside is that the frog is, like I said, electrically dead, which is normally not a problem unless you have short wheelbase locomotives, but as aforementioned, this can be corrected even after the track is permanently laid. Ultimately, so long as you know which type of turnout you are laying and how to lay it correctly, there won't be much of a difference between the two. While I'm teaching you how to lay track by not actually teaching you how to lay track, let's touch on two more general aspects of track laying which are well worth your attention. Track laying theory number the one. Identify the main line. Lay your track in phases, lay the main line first, and lay the main line most bulletproofly. In case there is any ambiguity, the main line is the absolute minimum route your train must take to go around the layout, either from one end to the other or in a loop. The reason you should do this is because, as I have abundantly mentioned in previous episodes, the main line is the minimum basic unit for model railroad operation. Fail a spur, and the spur doesn't work. Fail the main line, and the whole railroad doesn't work. However, this theory has an ulterior set of motives too. If you start by constructing the path of least interference, such that you can run your trains over your railroad with the least possible attention, you are afforded at least three things. First, since you are a beginner, you are probably actively acquiring your roster of locomotives. Each locomotive you acquire should be broken in, with an hour or so of continuous running. Admittedly, this ideology does date from earlier eras when mechanical engineering was more art than science, and definitely not CAD-driven. As such, most modern locomotives are not prone to spontaneous and catastrophic mechanical failure due to grease distribution among the gears, or something like that. But something does have to be said about cashing in on a locomotive's warranty within the first few hours of running as opposed to the first few months. Secondly, there is a meaningful self-check procedure available through being able to test your train length on the main line. Since you have likely defined parameters of your entire track plan around a particular train length, such as passing siding length or town spacing, you should start by actually, for realsies, testing the train length out in the actual room, scale, and layout size that you are working with. If you find out that your spacing between towns is too small, or that your planned train length is too short and that you need to redesign yards and sidings accordingly, it helps to have not actually laid any of the track in the yards or sidings yet. Third, and finally, the ability to run trains is, in my opinion, inherently motivating. We all join this hobby because we like running trains, right? So if you see a train winding around the layout, you'll be better able to see all of the accomplishments that your past few months of effort have brought, and you'll be more motivated to continue building the layout as well. Who doesn't just love to set a train going around the layout in the background while you work on a project? Track laying theory number the two. Start laying track first in the area of greatest complexity. This goes for wherever you are laying track, be it in a small town, for the whole railroad, or anything in between. The idea behind this is twofold, because apparently, like any good millennial journalist, I function by taking ideas and breaking them down into attractive numbered components. First, as you lay track, you accrue small variances in position from your plan as a result of real-world tolerances and imperfections. 
If you start with the more complicated areas, these variances can be compensated for by long uncomplicated track areas elsewhere on the layout. The most obvious example of this is something that anyone who has used click or sectional track is familiar with. As you make click track layouts more complicated, you occasionally end up with arrangements where pieces don't line up precisely. So, as we have all done, you sometimes kink the track at the joints just a hair to make it all fit together. If you have a really tight track arrangement, you usually end up with unavoidably large kinks. But if you have a long stretch of track, you can lessen the kinks by spreading it out a little bit at each joint. The same principle works for laying track on a permanent layout. Although FlexTrack will allow you to avoid track joint kinking, saving the long stretches to absorb plan fluctuations still allows you to lay the tough, tight, and complicated areas to a higher degree of smoothness and operational reliability by pushing the deviances accrued to be slowly corrected over a broad stretch of elsewhere. Additionally, there is also a logistical concern to laying track at the most complicated area first. Such areas usually involve a lot of track connecting in close confines with short distances between joints. I'm thinking of things like uh, yard ladders, Ys, or crossings. If you start laying track at these locations first, you can actually fabricate the track pieces as a unit before laying them, guaranteeing reliability. The most common way this is done is to arrange the track on your workbench and solder the pieces together such that there is no way that the rails can bend or the joints kink. Once you're satisfied that the track work is reliable, you can then bring it to the layout and glue it all down in one go. Trust me, this is infinitely easier than trying to affix track pieces in tight confines on layout. Before we end this episode, I would like to warmly thank all of the listeners who have left a review on iTunes, except, of course, the one listener who gave me a one-star rating. We all know the consequences of doing that, don't we? Mr. Thoughtcrime, I sentence you to contemplation. That being said, almost half of the raiders also left very kind reviews as well. Thank you for your comments, Frito Lays and W.D. Stouter. I'm glad I could help you, Mammon, and I hope you enjoyed episode 12, BNSF 533. Polito73, I am very grateful that you commented on my nicely flowing manner. I put dozens of hours into each script, and it's nice to know that it pays off. However, my two favorite reviews were also two of my oldest. Side note, why didn't I check these earlier? Because both of these speak quite directly to my personality. Am I free had this to say. I have listened to most episodes at least twice. Good information. However, you need to hang on as it is delivered with a fire hose. <laughs> Why, thank you. Good guy Seat Pie, on the other hand, had this to say. The host is a hoot. This guy makes me laugh. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. <laughs> I'm glad you say that, good guy Seat Pie, as that is my intention. Once again, thank you all for your kind reviews. Your feedback has been collected and summarily dismissed. I hope that, with this episode, I have set you up to seamlessly transition into laying track. Stay tuned, because two years and 15 episodes in, we might, perhaps, if we're really lucky, actually get to run some trains. <laughs> if you have a question or comment, you can contact me or join the Facebook group through my website at bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. 
And speaking of thought crimes, since this is the episode before the 2020 election, I just want to take a moment to remind you all that if you don't vote for Joe Biden, you are a wretched cunt who deserves to die in your own boomer-infected hole of your own making. Sorry to all the younglings who had to hear this, but uh, also don't forget that contrary to what your parents tell you, you actually do have a larger vocabulary if you swear by at least 60 odd words. And then also, if you have any issue with me politicizing trains, then I would like to remind you that it was your side who politicized decency first. So remember, vote Democratic or you don't deserve the air you breathe. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is... Gandhi Dancer, a track laborer, originating with the Gandhi Manufacturing Company specializing in track maintenance tools. Thank you for listening, and happy modeling.